Welcome to the Bible Vault, where we unpack the jewels of God's Word. I'm Jason. And I'm Katrina. And today we're continuing our series on who is Jesus by talking about the wedding at Cana. So to give you some context to this story, we wanted to provide some background on Israelite weddings in biblical times. What were some of the customs we would see in a biblical Israelite wedding? Though my research into more modern Jewish weddings turned up some changes, it largely corroborated what the study Bible had in an insert on family life in Israel. To discuss the background of Israelite weddings, I'll read from the insert, but I wanted to provide a bit of context for it first. The insert is speaking about the time of the patriarchs, which would be during the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it would span roughly 200 years from 2100 B.C. to 1900 B.C., However, there is evidence provided in the Gospels that many of these traditions continued into Jesus' time, and and this evidence is cited in the insert, so as I come to them in the reading, I'll be sure to mention those references. Uh, The insert reads, Marriage, the foundation of family in all cultures, appears quite different in the Bible than it does for people today. Western marriage customs owe more to ancient Rome than to ancient Israel. For example, June, named after Juno, the Roman queen of heaven and goddess of femininity and marriage, was for the Romans the most popular month for marriages. The exchange of rings is not biblical, but Roman. When a young woman and her family accepted a man's offer of marriage, she would receive gifts and a ring for the third finger of her left hand. Joining of the right hands and kissing go back to the Romans, not the Bible. Even holding marriage ceremonies in a place of worship with the exchange of vows goes back to Rome and not to biblical customs. Parents almost always arranged marriages in ancient Israel, as Abraham arranged the marriage of Isaac in Genesis 24. When Isaac's son Jacob left home, Isaac emphasized the importance of marrying within his own clan or tribe. Quote, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Take as your wife one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother, from Genesis 28, 1 through 2. Isaac intentionally sent Jacob to seek a wife among his first cousins. Although we might find the practice of arranged marriages odd or even cold, in fact, such marriages often lead to love. This is what could be expected, since loving parents would choose the best spouse for their child. In Isaac's case, we read, Rebekah became his wife, and he loved her in Genesis 24:67. Love came after the marriage. Courtship or marriage on the basis of love was not part of normal life at the time of the patriarchs. Parents from different families did not leave boys and girls alone together. However, young people might meet in the early morning or late afternoon when girls went to the village well to get water for their families. For example, Jacob met Rachel at the well. Although many of the patriarchs married late in life, it was common for people to marry in their mid-teens. The contract of marriage, or betrothal, was as binding as marriage itself. Once the families agreed on that commitment, the couple was was considered married. The New Testament story of Joseph and Mary provides an example of this. Although they were only pledged to be married, Joseph would have had to, quote, divorce Mary to break off the relationship in Matthew chapter 1. Ancient Israelites also had a practice called mohar, that is, a price paid to the bride's father to compensate him for the loss of his daughter. A common fee was 50 silver shekels. But in some cases, the mohar was not paid in money. For example, Jacob exchanged 14 years of labor to obtain Leah and Rachel from their father Laban. 
On occasion, the bride would receive some of the mohar as a gift from her parents. This was called the matan, or dowry. On the wedding day, the bridegroom would dress in wedding garments, and his friends would escort him to the house of the bride. The bride would come out to meet them with her friends. The Song of Solomon beautifully depicts a wedding procession and the meeting of a bride and groom, which actually is the context for Jesus' parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. The whole group would joyously parade to the home that the groom had prepared. Jesus used this imagery to describe his relationship to the church. Quote, In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And this is from John chapter 14. The Christian life is like a betrothal, and heaven will be like marriage. Whereas marriage in the patriarchal period would have been arranged by oral agreement, Later in Israelite history, the fathers of the two families and the groom would sign a marriage document. The couple would drink wine from a common cup to seal the marriage covenant and to signify the joy of their new life together. This may have taken place under a marriage canopy called the chupa. The term occurs in Joel chapter 2, where it is translated chamber. A week-long marriage feast often followed the ceremony, for example in John chapter 2, which is what we're looking into this week, and the meals were as elaborate as the family could afford. In some of these ancient customs, we might trace present-day practices. Though customs come and go, God's ideal remains constant. Based on the creation and union of Adam and Eve in Eden, the essence of marriage remains the same. It is a commitment wherein a man and a woman become one in Genesis chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 19. So, how does all of that tie into the wedding at Cana? What kind of traditions do we see brought into this story? The two main points that tie in are first, the point about a week-long marriage feast, which provides the setting of the miracle, and second, the line that the meals were as elaborate as the family could afford. The second point is particularly important as to how impressive the miracle was. In the If the wedding was expected to be elaborate, I would imagine that everything would follow suit, especially the wine. Yet, when Jesus' wine was taken to the master of the feast, the man in charge of seeing to the physical needs of the guests, he exclaimed that that was the good wine, meaning that Jesus' wine was better than even the best wine the family could afford. I think that makes sense. I mean, it sounds pretty similar to modern weddings in a way, where most family will make food and drink as best as they can. That is just so cool, though, that Jesus' wine was the best. But I guess I wouldn't really expect much less from him, as he is Jesus. Um, what's important about Jesus being invited to the wedding, though? The Bible points out that Jesus and his family were at the wedding, starting with the mention of Mary, which suggests that Mary may have been a relative or a close friend of the family. But beyond that, it shows that Jesus was well-liked and was fun to be around. He was badly enough wanted at the wedding that the host family welcomed his disciples as well. And while there's no mention as to whether the, or not the family knew the disciples too, there is also no mention of how many disciples Jesus had at this point. Based on the stories, it's reasonable to assume that there were at least six with him. Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip from the passages immediately preceding the story of the wedding at Cana, and James and John from their connections to the story of the calling of Andrew and Peter. Though it is possible that there were even more than that. This would have increased the number of mouths to feed, yet the, the host family wanted Jesus at the wedding enough that they invited his disciples as though they were his extended family. As for Jesus being fun to be around, these feasts were known for having singing and dancing, and it was a week-long party. 
Jesus and his disciples would have partaken in the festivities, so between that and how much the family wanted him to attend, it stands to reason that he was fun and would have contributed to the festivities even without the presence of the miracle. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a great representation of the wedding feast is actually depicted in a show called The Chosen. For anybody who hasn't seen it, go download the app. That's where you can watch the show and it's free. It's seriously that good. The episode that depicts the wedding at Cana is in season one, episode five. If you like that episode, I highly recommend watching the entire show too. I'm honestly not a huge crier, but I cried during every episode except for maybe one. But I think since I cried multiple times in other episodes, it kind of makes up for it. Yeah, I uh, I absolutely love The Chosen as well. I think that it does a fantastic job at depicting Jesus more in the human side in that it actually will show him having fun, show him cracking jokes, doing things like that. And so it helps bridge some of the gap between what we tend to think of Jesus being and what it, he likely actually was. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's part of my favorite, or kind of one of my favorite parts of that whole entire show. Um, any final thoughts or anything like that? Uh, I think that just about covers it. So next episode, we will be talking about what the wedding at Cana means for us as Christians. After that, we'll continue our series on who is Jesus by talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. If you have any questions or comments, please be sure to head over to our Instagram page at the Bible Vault Podcast and shoot us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to hear your story and learn more about our listeners, so feel free to reach out at any time for any reason. Thank you for joining us today on the Bible Vault. God bless, and we will see you next time.